Let's gather back to our seats. Got a very full text this morning. Ezra chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, under the theme, Worship Matters. I take that title from a book I read by Bob Coughlin, good book on worship. Worship Matters, verses 1 through 6. These are verses written right as the children of Israel have sort of reconstituted into their first year back in Jerusalem after being in exile. Let me read verses 1 through 6. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josedak, with his fellow priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and at all the appointed feast of the Lord and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. I just want to begin by saying, You know, after reading those six verses, it still jumps out to me that the word offerings or offer is repeated 13 times in six verses. This is a major priority of this 50,000 people that have just come out of exile. They've traveled 900 miles from Babylonia. They're into their seventh month um, after being there probably seven months so far. And they're reconstituting with the townspeople, the residents who didn't go to exile. They've kind of gathered together. And the first thing that they're doing is offering to the Lord. It's the theme of sacrificial worship. You're bringing your offering, your animal, your livestock. This is what Old Testament money is in many cases. You're bringing your livelihood to the Lord. And this is a major theme in our text. Worship, worship. Uh, The word worship, by the way, comes from the concept and word worth. It's the idea that you're valuing something. You're you're offering worth towards something, someone, or hopefully to God. We're all worshipers. Uh, We're designed that way. Being made in the image of God, we're thinkers. We're, We're people who feel things on an emotional level. We're different from all other creation. We make plans. We dream dreams. We, we create from the creation. We're, we're made in God's image. We reflect God's creative design. We have minds. And so within the way God made us, we are going to worship something, someone, and hopefully God. That's what we're called to do is to be worshipers or worth attributors to God who alone is worthy of worship. People worship all the time. Romans 1, for instance, says that 
people are worshiping, even if they are worshiping in a pagan way. Romans 1, you might turn over there, talks about this. And even in the most pagan, digressive cultures, people are worshiping all the time. Verse 18, it talks about how there is truth that's out there that's revealed through the creation. And so people are stimulated to worship something. It's just part of how God made them. Ecclesiastes says everybody has eternity in their hearts. So they're, they're looking for a direction to worship. And verse 18 sadly says that most of the people in our world, in our universe, throughout the generations, will take the truth about God, what they learn from creation, invisible attributes of God coming into their heart, and instead of worshiping God back, the the creator of everything, they take that truth and it's like they stick it in a box, put a lid on it, and sit on it. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They deny themselves their designed opportunity to worship God and they worship something else. What do they worship? Verse 23, verse 22, they they claim to be wise, they become fools, verse 23, and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images. So at some level, there's, you know, pagan worship, there's totem worship, there's, you know, false image worshiping that goes on. It says uh, they exchange the glory of God for images resembling mortal man, birds and animals and creeping things. So they're worshiping the creation instead of the creator. And then verse 25, look at this exchange. It says, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. You see that culture worships people. If, if you're, if you're born and you're a person, you're a worshiper. But the goal in the kingdom of God is to worship God, not other things. People worship their ideals. They worship their dreams. Even if they're not in rank paganism, they're worshiping self. If people worship what they don't have, they worship the woulda, coulda, shouldas, right? People worship all kinds of things, you know, dashed dreams. People bow at the altar of that in anxiety and fear and, and despair and despondency. The key of the the gospel mission is to transform that kind of pagan self-worship and move it upward where we worship God. That's that's the call of the Christian church is to to be part of making disciples who are worshipers. That's what Jesus did in John 4. He met a woman, Samaritan woman at the well and the way that he evangelized her, the way he brought her to see himself was to talk about her heart and worship. That was the theme of their discussion. She's a Samaritan. There's a racial difference between a Jew and a Samaritan. There's awkwardness there, and Jesus sort of bursts through that awkwardness, loving her, loving her heart. She's in immorality. She's she's away from God's holiness and and sort of distance there. And Jesus is entering into her world, asking for a drink. That's just something that wouldn't happen. He's breaking through um, the male-female barrier. He's breaking through religious barriers. He's breaking through racial barriers. And he's he's doing all of this with the theme of worship. And in verse 22, he says, look, you worship what you do not know. Now, he's calling her a worshiper. But that's not enough. You, you are worshiping something, but it's something you don't know. We worship what we know, 
He's, Jesus is talking about the God of the Jews. For salvation is from the Jews. Now watch this, verse 23. But an hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. True worshipers. That's what we're all about. We're all about personally being true worshipers. That's vertical, God-centered worshipers, the true God, and doing it in truth. We're energized. Our hearts are transformed to worship rightly. Now, this is amazing. I can't help but read this. For the Father, this is God, is seeking such people to worship him. It's amazing. God, holy God, who, who is worthy of all worship, is, is actually pursuant of those who rebel and don't want to worship him. And he, he captures them, transforms their heart to worship him. That's grace. That's grace. That God sought you and me. To, to be a wor- Can you believe that? He interrupted your life and made you a worshiper of, of him. Can you believe that? That is, that is worthy of, of rejoicing. And, and that's why we enter in it. Because he selected you. To, he, turned, he turned the lights on and turned you to him to be a worshiper. God is spirit. He's invisible. And those who worship him must. You, your only way you're going to see the invisible God, you, you must worship him in spirit. Because God opened your heart. And in truth, because he's revealed himself here. The invisible God, we see him with spiritual eyesight and worship him. That's why we come. And worshiping is, it's individual. I get that. We're temples of the Holy Spirit individually. But you know what? Worship is, is uniquely corporate as well. And we're going to talk about that in Ezra 3, verse 1. It's, it's very corporate. Let, let me just give you a working definition. If you grab the uh, take-home page, that's never cheating. You, you should grab the handout if you want Ahead of time, you can grab it afterwards on the table over there. I, my wife and I, you just met her if you, you don't know her. Uh, she is a, a really good writer, and uh, we wrote a children's curriculum together about a decade ago. And the first paragraph that we wrote together was on worship, and this is it. It's a definition. It's just something we put together. We, we wanted our kids to engage in doctrine and theology and learn heavy things, and we wanted our church to. Worship is people or angels expressing by words, actions, and attitudes God's worth, highest position, greatness, preciousness, and desirability above all else. Just our stab at it. Worship is a, it's an interesting thing. It's, it's preferential. There's people who, who get involved in the worship wars. You know, I wish we did this. I wish we did that. I, my worship experience, you know, from the past was this. I was hatched from this egg or that egg. I was hatched, hatched from the liturgical egg or I was hatched from the charismatic egg. And so I want worship to feel this way for me or for, for me this way. And, and worship is so much bigger than that, right? It's bigger than the preferences. And worship is, is about God and being biblical, Okay, and then everything else is part of the preference and design of God bringing a body together where we kind of paint the palette together and, and we, we are a worship experience that's unique as a local church. And that's a beautiful thing in God's mosaic of worshipers. But first and foremost, it's about who God is and about what the Bible calls us to do to worship him. Everything else is, is preferential. The key, first and foremost, is to ask this question, and that's, this is the question I want to ask as we go back to Ezra chapter 3. Does worship matter to you? 
Does worshiping God matter to you personally, corporately? Does it matter to us? Does it matter to you? And it mattered to these people. That's why I'm reflecting on the text in this way. Worship mattered to these pilgrim exiles that came back. That is why they traveled 900 miles. That's why they changed worlds. That's why they left pagan world and and came down to the city of Zion to reconstitute fellowship, worship, community, and do it in a public way. They, They were prompted by the Spirit of God to do this, and that's their supreme goal. And that's why you have the word offering 13 times over and over again. They they just were all about it and all about being public. Number one, worship matters when, it matters to you when, worship is your identity. Verse one, when worship is your identity. Look at this. Um, When the seventh month came, seventh month came, and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered, here's the phrase, as one man to Jerusalem. One man. They allowed themselves to get in a community and an identity for worship. One man. It reminds me of the New Testament, Ephesians 2, where the barrier between Jew and Gentile is broken down and we are one man in Christ. We're we're new creatures together. Where Paul broke through the different barriers of, you know, male, female, race, background, poor, rich, nationality whether you were a barbarian, Scythian. He he said, we're all one in Christ. It's the idea of of, of just falling into a family of God. You're folding in, in corporate identity, where you are not ashamed of the gospel together for the gospel. Hebrews 10 says, let's not forsake the assembly as some are in the habit of doing. Let us gather together together to spur each other on to love and good deeds, being one temple in the New Testament, living stones, fitting in together. And right here, you have corporate identity in Zion. Why is that important? It's important for uh, a couple reasons. They were starving to do this again. They were hungry for worship because for 70 years, two generations had been in Babylon Surrounded by 50 different Babylonian temples, according to one record, and then also 180-some open-air shrines. They're they're just surrounded by paganism, and I'm sure there were little flints and glints and shimmer, you know, little ideas of worship that were going on, but primarily they were incognito. Yeah, Daniel, who worshipped out loud and prayed, you know, throughout the day, and he was thrown into the den of lions... Worship was dangerous. It was something where they were, they, were, they were sort of choked out from being able to worship publicly. It kind of reminds me of the uh, church that's underground in many countries where people, they can't worship openly and publicly. They still do it. They're still worshipers, but they can't do it as openly as they would like to. I mean, we have an incredible privilege to worship God, right? When we raise our communion glass, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. 1 Corinthians 11. That is public worship. Online, people can go online and they know that in Anchorage, there is one church and there are several churches meeting right now publicly, freely, openly. It's a joy to be able to do that under virtually no threat of persecution. My brother, he's a pastor and he's traveled to several different 
countries around the world. And one of his invite as a uh, sort of missionary pastor going in uh, was in China, southern China, where it's totally illegal to worship Christ openly. And government officials will, you know, take you and put you in jail or send you home if you do that. And I don't know if you'll totally agree with this method, but, you know, one church there, it basically... um, it was, a, it was a church meeting of pastors where they basically play ping pong upstairs. That's their meeting table. They play ping pong while people look out the windows and stand on the streets to make sure no secret service are coming by. And they put the paddles away and open their Bibles and start to learn and train together as they're worshiping God. We have an incredible freedom. Just like these exiles were experiencing finally once again to worship God publicly, openly. It's a witness. You know, no matter what else we do this morning, the discipline of gathering is a witness. Do you realize that? I can't get away from the fact that one time when I was in New Zealand on a missions trip, I was there and there were some teenage boys who wanted to be baptized. And we're going to be baptized in this little tiny church in this little tiny sort of beach town in Hokitika in the South Island of New Zealand. And, you know, we thought it was a pretty private affair to have these boys baptized. So we, we brought them in and, and we had a baptism service. But as soon as they were done and we were done with the baptism service, we left the building and a, a carload of boys drove up kind of and, you know, sort of cut us off and said, hey, did, you know, you know, I can't really muster up a New Zealander or Australian accent that would satisfy the moment. But just imagine, hey, did those, you know, chock-a-block boys, you know, did, did they get baptized? And we're like, yeah, we baptized them. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Drove off. And that was because they wanted to know if those young men were going to step out publicly. Now, it was behind shut doors, but it was a public acknowledgement that they were for Christ now. And there was that sort of separating out from the world where you say, we are a public corporate witness together. And when you do that, when you say, yeah, I'm part of church and I'm going to church, that is witnessing. And that's what they were doing here as one man. Worship is identity in this way. Well, look back up at the beginning of verse 1. It was the seventh month. This is the month called Tishri in the Jewish calendar. It's halfway through September through halfway through October. And three of the primary feasts in the festal um, Jerusalem calendar were celebrated and are celebrated um, according to the Old Testament. And the first feast is called the Feast of Trumpets, where they blow trumpets at the beginning of the month. It's kind of a harvest seed-sowing time of year where they're, they're celebrating the Lord and His faithfelness and wanting again a good harvest for the future. Ten days later, they have Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. Again, reflecting back on the salvation of the Jews from Egypt, where again, they had been commanded to slaughter a lamb, their, their prized animal that would be spotless and blameless over their doorpost to be a salvation symbol of their firstborn son as the death angel passed over. That was part of what loosed them or redeemed them out of captivity. So Yom Kippur talks about God's yearly atonement and saving grace on the people of God as true worshipers. You have the one lamb that sacrificed and the scapegoat that represents being saved and the condemnation goes on that rather than yourself. 
So that happened 10 days later. And then um, from the 15th through the 21st of that month of Tishri, you have the Feast of Booths. This is uh, what one author called the Wilderness Reminder Week. (laughs) It's like Spiritual Emphasis Week, where everybody in the whole town goes out and camps together. And you're camping in lean-tos or booths, they'd call them, or tents. The Feast of Tabernacles, that's what this feast is. And they would reflect on how God provided for them as they journeyed through the wilderness, needing water. It was, it, the theme was desperation. We're desperate for God. We're worshiping him because he meets all of our needs. He, he gave us water from the rock. He fed us manna from heaven. He gave us food and sustenance. So it's kind of a week of desperation and saying, Lord, thank you that you give to us. It's also their time of praying for the harvest to come in the future as they sowed the seed during that season. Most importantly, the symbols of the feast, I just have to say the light source that was the candelabra 70 feet high and the water source, which was from the pool of Siloam that was poured over the altar, those were symbols pointing to in the future the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. John 7 and 8, you read about it later. Worship is identity. They were identifying again with the Jewish calendar. I mean, imagine that. 70 years without that, and then there it is, right in the word. How do we do it? How do we get public? We start doing it, and they do it right at the seventh month. Second, worship is priority. Worship is the priority. This is verse 2. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josedak, which with his fellow priest and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. Look what happens. And they built the altar of the God of Israel. The language here is so definite. What's the first thing they did? Did they build the temple? No, they, they re-engage with the word of God and what they're supposed to be all about publicly with worship. And then they, they looked at the little burned over site where the temple used to be, a sort of blackened area probably, charred to the ground. And they said, that's where the temple was. And then according to First Chronicles 22, David said, you know, the temple shall be built here and the altar shall be placed there. And they said, okay, let's take some cut stones, just like Abram did when he first came to the land in Genesis 12, 3. Let's take some cut stones and let's make the priority the altar. Let's build an altar. That's what we need to do. Altar first. Joshua's name is mentioned first here only in Ezra and Nehemiah right here in this verse. Everywhere else you'll see Zerubbabel, the government official, sort of the prince or governor of the the land and the movement, the reestablishment of the building. But here Joshua's name is first, and it's put forward to emphasize worship, to emphasize the altar. We got cut stones. We're going to worship. We're going to burn sacrificial offerings, whole burn offerings. We're going to get about this morning and evening. Yeah, we're, we're fulfilling the calendar, but part of our regular thrust, it's like a New Testament believer praying without ceasing. We're going to start offering sacrifices. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Be not conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, which is your spiritual sacrificial service. 
be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord. So they're throwing themselves into regular, ongoing worship. That's what they wanted to be all about publicly. What would it have, what would it have looked like? Well, it says they did it, look at this verse 2, as is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Now, because of that phrase, it is written, I've got to turn us ahead forward to Nehemiah chapter 8. Just look over there, one book over. This is not the exact same scene, but it's the exact same theme and setting for what was going on at this moment. It was more than burnt offerings. There was the word of God present. In Nehemiah 7, um, verse 73, it talks about how on the seventh month they gathered together. And in Nehemiah 8, you have Ezra here at this point. He's not there in Ezra chapter 3 yet. He'll show up later. But here in Nehemiah 8, it's a picture of Ezra's leadership as the scribe who brought the book of the law of Moses, verse 1. He was a priest who brought the law before the assembly, verse 2. He did it at the seventh month. He read it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, verse 3. Verse 4, he stood on a wooden platform for this very purpose as a scribe. And then verse 5, and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. It's one of the reasons why we have the standing for the reading of God's word. Verse 6, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. This is multi-thousands of people who are gathering together publicly as the one man in Jerusalem, lifting up their hands, bowing their heads, and falling to the floor as they heard the word of God. And they read from the book, from the law of God, Clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. The reason I bring this up is because I just want you to hear from my heart. Worship wars and worship preferences are so not the primary issue of worship. We worship the God of the Bible. The Word of God is the light that shows us who God is so that we can worship Him. I mean, no matter if we had instruments or sound system or any of that, the issue is always the primacy of the scripture. And I'm not talking about bibliolatry where we sort of bow down and worship, you know, scholarship. That's not what I mean. The, the word is, is living and active, and it's, it's a mirror reflection of the glory of God to our hearts. Okay, God opens himself up to us through the word of God. It, it guides us. And if you're not thinking rightly about God, or if you're not thinking about God and you're singing to God, but you're not engaged in terms of how the Bible reveals him, then you're really not worshiping him. You're worshiping elsewhere. The Bible directs worship, true worship. It's truth-oriented worship. You, know, you think about communities like you know Russia, former Soviet Union, um, communist countries or, or even islander, Pacific Islander countries or, or regions where you're, you're killed if you have the word of God or you're imprisoned or you're beaten or persecuted if you have even a, a page of scripture. Have you heard of these stories where people 
bury scripture in the ground so that their kids won't be taken from them, so bad things won't happen to them. Because they want to cling to the word of God, but they're fearing being hurt because they possess the word of God. And the reason that countries oppress possessing the word of God is this is a revolutionary book. It transforms cultures, it transforms families, it transforms government, it transforms morality. It's it's the one book that does that in the universe, ever. This is the power source for worship. And so for them to be going, for the Israelites to be going home and opening the book and that drawing worship, that was a revolutionizing moment for Israel. It's what puts things back on track. Oh, what a privilege it is for us to be able to have the Bible to prompt us to worship Him. You go, you know, my worship personally is pretty dry. Well, my encouragement from passages like these is open the book. Let the book stimulate the worship. Let the Word of God draw you into worship as you get a clearer vision of who He is in taking the Word of God, meditating on the Scripture, thinking about the Scripture Singing the scripture, this is what spawns spiritual worship in your hearts. It's what stokes the flame. It's sort of the the switch that that lights the kerosene lamp in your heart. It's the word. Look back at verse 2. Moses is called the man of God. Why is Moses called the man of God? One of the first things I think of, sadly, when I think of Moses is his failures. You ever think of that? You know, Moses, he was a great leader. He was sort of the leader of leaders, taking the millions of Israelites out of captivity towards the promised land. But at the end, he disobeyed God's word to him and was not able to enter into the promised land. But I think, and you think of Abraham, he, you know, he was a man of God. This phrase, man of God, is applied to 12 different men in the Old Testament, people like David, people like Elijah, Elisha, Eli, Samuel. There are these heroes of the faith who are not perfect people, but they were still called men of God. Why? Because they were obeying the word of God. They were standing on the authoritative truths of Scripture. That's it. The only authority that anyone ever has Male or female, um, in the New Testament church, the only authoritative word that you can ever give is just what's from Scripture. That's the authority that's given. And it actually does carry forth in the New Testament. It's amazing. You have 77 references to this phrase, the man of God, and these 10 or 12 saints that are called men of God. And then in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 6, verse 11, Paul, the apostle, looks at Timothy and says, Look, I want to stoke the flame back in you for you to be a strong leader in the church. And I'm going to call you, he says, O man of God, flee youthful lusts. You're a man of God. Flee these things, O man of God. And then in 2 Timothy, if you turn over there, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 is where Paul says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Look at this. This is talking about leaders in the church. That the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. The church has this word to be led by the truth. And I am unashamedly a lover of scripture. It's because I love Jesus. 
I mean, that's my testimony. I opened the Bible. I, I got on my knees by bedside at 17. I was rebelling. I was going the wrong way. Opened the Bible, and the Bible transformed my heart. It, it, it regenerated. The, the Spirit of God used the Word, and, and I became regenerated and alive because of the Bible. Never liked to read before that. I never liked to study. I didn't like to sit. I didn't like to do any of that. I didn't like to speak publicly. I didn't like to do any of that. And the Bible flipped a switch. And so what do I do for a living? I read and study and talk the things that I dreaded and didn't like to do. Now that's all I do. And I'm up here now because of the Bible. But it's because of Jesus who wrote this Bible. It's because of him. But he speaks to us by the word of God. That's why when a worship song or a hymn connects in a unique way with scripture or with truth, it enlivens my heart and makes me want to sing. That's the song that's in the heart of every believer. That's the new song that we resonate with as believers. It's what makes us living sacrifices. Okay, well, worship is your identity. If it matters to you, it's your priority. Altar first. And then three, worship is your refuge. This is what really jumped out at me and surprised me in the text. Look at the motive of worship. Why did they start worshiping God in this way? Look at verse 3. They set the altar in its place, that unique exact place designed for the altar. For fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord. Burnt offerings morning and evening. What cranked up this theme of worship, this action of worship? It probably wasn't just generated by the Jewish calendar. It was fear. It was fear. That word fear is the same word for dread. It's being terrified. In Proverbs, it talks about fearing man. In Job, Job says, uses this word in terms of being fearful of wild animals. They were terrified. And they were terrified by the Samaritans. There, there were people around that, that are Sumerians who, who could have attacked them and, and people who were sort of syncretized with world other pagan religions that were not true Israelites anymore. And you have surrounding communities and they, they kind of accommodated the exiles coming in. There's no war threat when they showed up. They're, they're sort of also accommodating the building of the temple we'll see in the book of Ezra. But suddenly they want to stymie the process and, and sort of talk about how it's illegal to do this. And we're going to open all of this up in the story of Ezra. But for 20 years the process was stalled by these sort of intruders that were causing the exiles and the people of God in Jerusalem to be afraid. You know, when you get afraid, it's easy to just sort of shut down, sort of draw back, hide, not put yourself out there, not want to risk yourself anymore because you're already working through the anxieties of fear from people or from perceptions or things that could happen to you. What did they do? They drew nearer to God in boldness. And that is sort of the theme of my life. Whenever I am afraid, what I do is sort of draw forward and upward to the Lord. And it's the first step when you're fearful is to worship. Think about that. What do I do? What's the first thing I can do when I'm afraid? Worship. Something bad has happened to me. Worship. Go to the altar. That's what they did. 
That's how they coped. That's how they persevered was worship. We're going we're to crank it up morning and evening. Go into the altar. Go into the altar. Okay, you know, I'm, I'm struggling. I, I want to put the Bible away. No, no, no. Draw near to the Bible. Draw near to God. Draw near and worship because you are afraid. It's a driving motivation of the people of God. Psalm 92.2 reflects this. A morning and evening um, worship that they were all a part of. And they were burning offerings that represent the atoning sacrifice for their sins that ultimately pointed to the ultimate sacrifice in Christ who is, as Romans chapter 3 says, the just and justifier. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice and he justified. He, he made right the dilemma you had before you came to faith in Christ. There was a barrier. And all of those sacrifices that were done were pictures, were foretastes, foreshadowing the once-for-all sacrifice, the whole sacrifice, the whole once-for-all atoning sacrifice for our sins. Worship is our refuge. Well, fourthly, worship is ongoing, and we've sort of hinted and looked at that morning and evening, just like as, uh, as we are as believers, we're to pray without ceasing. We're called to be living sacrifices. We're ongoingly worshiping God. We we should give to the Lord at the first day of the week. We should give ongoingly to the Lord's work. Why? Because it's an overflow of who God has made us to be. We're not to be drunk with the world's wine, but we are to be filled in spirit and spiritual mindedness. We're to keep seeking the things that are above. We're to let the word of Christ regularly enrich our minds. It's ongoing worship. And this was sort of the beginnings of that morning and evening. What's God's major concern for being a worshiper? It's our hearts. It's not just the regular attendance of services, Bible studies, even accountability groups. That's not God's chief concern. His chief concern is what you and him know most about, which is the spiritual condition of your heart. And he knows more about your spiritual condition than you even will allow yourself to know about, right? That's what he's concerned about. In 1 Samuel 15, 22, Saul had offered a sacrifice. He, he, he said, oh, the armies, you know, the enemies are coming and I'm going to offer this sacrifice and just get it done. Samuel's not here. I'm going get, to get it done. And Samuel showed up and said, God's not pleased with your sacrifice, Saul. And to obey is better than sacrifice. It's, an, it's the attitude of the heart. That's what God wants. He wants us to, to ongoingly worship out of an attitude of love and submission. And even where we're, we're just throwing ourselves on the Lord where he's our refuge. Maybe we're filled with anxiety and filled with fear, but we just throw ourselves on the Lord for mercy to get us through. Number five, that's our last point. Worship is special. You know worship matters when worship is special. You say, where is that coming from? Well, that really was a way to grab the last few verses of our text. Look at the special opportunities for worship that are delineated for us in verse four. And they kept the feast of booths as it is written and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. 
And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, the offerings of everyone who made free will offering to the Lord. Verse 6, from the first day of the seventh month, that's the Feast of Trumpets, they begin to offer burnt offerings. So they're, they're in a routine of special event worship also. There's the ongoing worship that happens individually and regularly with morning and evening sacrifices. That reflects our lives as we meet with the Lord individually and personally and sacrificially. Perhaps that's the free will offerings where we're giving above and beyond the normal scheduled worship. But then there's a whole lot that's scheduled here with the Feast of Booths, with the Feast of Trumpets, with the New Moon Feast, which is the once a month feast, an offering that was done. What makes it special? Why? Why? Why worship God in this way in special ways? You know, there are special ways that we're supposed to worship God in the New Testament church. Prescribed in the pastoral epistles where there's preaching, the standing and reading of God's word is mentioned. Um, however you apply that, you know, we apply it in a unique, unique way here. There's the idea that we're supposed to regularly gather and assemble together and worship the Lord. And we're to have elders as spiritual leaders who are watching over our souls. We're to serve in the body of Christ. We're to have deacons in the church who serve regularly in an official capacity. We're to have um, baptisms that we observe and people are obedient to to partake in and we watch and affirm there is communion, the Lord's table where we are regularly in a spirit of sacrifice. We are worshiping God, remembering the cross on our behalf. All of these things are regular, special parts of our worship that are public, that are corporate and are defined in scripture. And there are some people who say, well, you know what? I don't need the special part. I, I've got, I don't need the institutionalized part. I've got my own form of worship that I do individually, and that's fine and good. Well, let me sort of open up why we have to have both. And we'll do it in the spirit of a holiday that's coming up in just a few days, men. It's called Valentine's Day. And you know what? I hear that Valentine's Day is something that we're supposed to both celebrate, men and women. But really, if the woman forgot Valentine's Day, who cares? It's if we forget, wow, are we in the dog house, right? Special event. It's one thing to say to your wife, happy Valentine's Day, and actually have thought through a Valentine, whether it's a special event or a dinner or, or a card or flowers, and, and that's a very important thing to do, right? But if we forget, and if we come to our wife and we say to her, listen, honey, you are special every day. You're my Valentine every day, and I know I forgot this particular day, but I just want you to feel special anyway. How special is she going to really feel Men, if you, if you take that technique to just go to your wife on Mother's Day or her birthday or Valentine's Day and say, hey, look, it's Mother's Day every day. If you want to take that technique, just sign up for counseling, marriage counseling later on, and we'll meet and we'll unpackage this whole thing. The point is there are special ways that are coordinated from Scripture into our lives that we are supposed to be a part of. Special offerings, regular offerings, hearing the word, 
being part of church as prescribed in Scripture. That is the special worship. And then there is the ongoing organic living worship that happens in our hearts by everything that we do and how we live. It's both. It's the biblical balance of organic worship or personal worship and organized worship from Holy Scripture. And that's what we have here in this text. And that's what they were all about. Again, verse 6. It says, But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. That's a, that's a strong point to say, listen, worship mattered to them. The altar mattered to them. They were re-centralizing, refocusing worship of God as one man in Jerusalem, even before the building was constructed. That's the heart of worship. And the rest flows out of that. All right, let's look at a few applications. Number one. I've already read to you the definition. I would encourage you to, to, you know, look this through. Worship is people or angels expressing by words, actions, and attitudes. God's worth, highest position, greatness, preciousness, and desirability above all else. Just a way to get your arms around worship. You can find your own definition. But it's important for you to be able to know what it is, what it means to attribute worth to God. Number two, because you are made in the image of God you will worship God or someone or something. Just know that. As we shepherd our own hearts, just know we were designed to worship. And so it is part of a spiritual habit and discipline to focus our hearts upward to the one true God who is worthy of our worship. Number three, worship is both organic and organized. We just talked about that. It's personal. It's also formal. It's, it's individual. It's also corporate got to have that biblical balance number four this is one that i want to emphasize to you heart to heart we're called to train up worshipers even if your kids are out of the home you should serve in sunday school i mean or awana this is part of the calling of the body of christ is to raise up worshipers worshipers that's evangelism that's what jesus did john 4 we talked about Calling people to be worshipers. And if you get in conversations with loved ones and and talk about worship with them, that will tap into part of who they are. And oftentimes it will it will diagnose or sort of open up or evidence the idea that there's a longing to be a worshiper and they just haven't engaged that longing yet they haven't been energized yet and you're talking to someone they go yeah you know i do want to worship god i think that's why people come to church who don't come to church and they come on christmas and easter because it's connecting with them at least a couple times out of the year to say yeah there's i i do want to acknowledge that there is a god it's because we're made to worship and part of our goal as parents is to worship in front of our kids to worship with our kids you say my kid's not a believer yet you know is that sacrilegious i don't think so the bible says to train up a child in the way he should go proverbs 22 to raise your children in the discipline and instruction of the lord and i think modeling praying modeling singing and actually practicing the discipline of worship in a non-legalistic way where you're calling your children to be soft-hearted to seek forgiveness to one another to seek forgiveness to the parent 
All of that is the discipline and training of worship in your kids. Very important to do. Very important to cultivate that in the lives of your children or the children of the church or relationships beyond. All right, number five. We are called to unashamedly worship God no matter the cost. You know, because we live in a community and in a country where we can freely worship, we should all the more say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm a worshiper. That's who I am. I'm a worshiper. You know, it's the I am a C, I'm a C-H, I'm a C-H-R-E-S-D-I-N, right? I mean, you just say, I'm unashamed. That's who I am. And you should wear that openly because it is evangelistic. It's God-glorifying. And it's, it should be part of our individual and corporate identity, worshiping God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. We thank you that we have gathered in your name to worship you in spirit and in truth. I thank you personally, and we thank you together corporately for the example of these exiles. Lord, they are changing our lives as we look at the word. We want to worship and have that as our identity as a church. Thank you for our local church here in the community. I pray that we would be more expressive and more energized in our worship for your glory and namesake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'd invite you to stand up as we sort of stretch our legs for our dismissal. My encouragement.